Good morning. Happy Sunday. It's truly a beautiful day. I think, um, I don't check the weather, but I think I heard it was going to be 60 today. Is that true? 57, something like that. So maybe spring is finally here. I'm excited this morning because we're in a new series, Crosswords. This is the very first uh, in this series. I love this time of year. I love spring. I love the preparation for Good Friday and Easter, and I love kind of the focus that we have. And so when uh, Kevin asked me to launch the series and talk about covenant, I got a little excited inside because you know what? Finally, I get to preach the whole Bible, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning because covenant is a really deep word. It's the predominant theme through the Old and New Testaments. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to put it in context. We're going to look exactly what we're talking about when we come to the table and we talk about covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. What is Jesus really saying there? So this morning, I'm going to ask you to fly with me at 30,000 feet, okay? So we're going to do this and we're going to move. So just keep with me. We're in church. There are no parachutes. We're going to do it by faith, okay? But we'll get there, I promise. Lots of you know my testimony. When I was younger, I was a little bit of a skeptic. Um, I had questions that I had to answer for myself because my faith couldn't be um, inherited. The issue for me was justice. These justice uh, things that I saw in the Old Testament things about what would happen about people in other countries, uh, how would they have a chance uh, to hear the gospel. This, what we're talking about this morning, if you are out in the world and you are with uh, your non-Christian friends, they're going to ask you tough questions because things happen in this life that are just tough and they're going to come to you and say, why? This right here, this covenant, putting it in the context, going big picture, is how my heart has come to reconcile a lot of those hard questions. And that's what we want to do this morning because it is the Easter season. It is this table, this communion Sunday, this covenant is evidence of how much God loves you and has pursued you throughout history. That is what we're going to talk about this morning. How beautiful the covenant is, how beautiful the table is. And all that he's promised. So let's begin in Matthew 26, 26 through 30. This is the covenant. This is our first crossword. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to him saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, demonstrated. We we are thankful to you for your words, for your presence, And as we come before you this morning to remember your covenant, to remember you, 
We do it with humble hearts and gratitude, and we thank you. It's in your name. Amen. So, as we do this, this morning, we want to talk about relationship, because covenant is about relationship. When we look at this book, we look at this as, yes, it's two books, yes, it's 66 books, but yes, it is also one book, right? This we can look at as a story, a story of covenant. If this is a story, who is it about? Where are you right now? Where are you sitting? You're in church, right? What's always the right answer in church? It's Jesus, right? This is a story about Jesus, right? 30,000 feet, remember? Come on, let's go. Covenant is about the relationship of the history that we're going to look at, but it's also the relationship of some of the doctrine that we base our faith on, and this is the stuff that Jesus and God has been saying. That's basically doctrine, what God is saying. And this is revealed over time. So as we do this, and we talk about the story, when we talk about this revelation, when we talk about this covenant, there are two things that we're going to approach this with, two assumptions. First is unity, right? This is all the redemptive story of Jesus Christ and his great love for you. That's covenant this morning. But there's also progression. When we look at this and we look at covenant and how it progresses in this Bible as a story, there's progression. Things mature. It's like an infant coming to adulthood or an acorn growing into a great tree. We get more as we go of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what we're going to do this morning. And to do that, let's go to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 27. It says this, So God created man in his own image, the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it, the fish and the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This was God's original talk to us. He wanted to bless us from the very beginning. This is who we were supposed to be. We see from this passage, we're supposed to be stewards. And our culture is supposed to reflect that of God. And it's very significant when he starts talking about we are image bearers. Because if we truly believe that, we will approach this table a lot more well, I put the more in there, so I can't say differently now, right? We'll approach it differently. We'll approach it with who is at this table and why we're coming. It's the first poem in the Bible. The Old Testament is about 40% poetry. And this is the first beautiful poem where it talks about how we bear God's image. Others bear God's image. We must take others seriously. We must treat them with mercy and grace. So what do we see happens here? This was the first thing that God had for us, but then we see it doesn't last. Adam and Eve are created. They're in communion with God. They're in covenant with God. But then we see what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a story of how our first parents became enamored with the possibility of not relying 
on God. Their identity changes. They are lured by Satan. They choose rather to reject God's loving counsel. They eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because why? Satan tells them that they can become like God. This is the moment where we all fall into sin. And it was the rejection of that childlike dependence on our Heavenly Father because somehow at this moment it becomes distasteful. It becomes unfulfilling. And the fall is complete. When we as humans want to rule our own lives, we want to promote our own glory. It becomes all about us. It becomes inward focus. And we reject God's provision for abundant life. And so so we see in Genesis 3 what happens. We rebel. And with Adam and Eve, the whole human race falls. But what I want to point out here is Genesis 3.15. Where God is coming and he says to the certain serpent, because you've done this. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. What is that? Who is that? That's Jesus. Even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of our self-glorifying, saying this is all about me, even in the midst of us saying, God, we don't want you. We don't want that kind of relationship. We have our identity. I can be like you. I can be God. That is my identity. Not dependent on you. Even in the midst of that, God says, you know what? I am going to give you the most precious, the thing that costs me the most. That's my covenant with you. So I have a question for you. In Genesis 3.15, we have the fall. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. We have this promise in 15. Why didn't God send Jesus right there? Why do we go through all this stuff to get to the cross? If we're looking at this as a story, I think we can look at this Genesis 1 through 11 as a prologue. And what I really believe we learn from the prologue is that if Jesus came right then, right at the moment of our rebellion, Adam and Eve would have turned to God and said, Hey, God, what are you doing? I got this. I can bring this back around. I can do this on my own. I got it. But what happens for the next 2,000 years in Genesis 1 through 11? Sin after sin after sin. We have the flood. We go to a place, the Tower of Babel, where we are prideful. We believe the lie of Satan. We believe that we are going to do it on our own, and we want to. 2,000 years of just sin after sin, and it starts to turn into lies. Because once your identity is skewed, you have to lie. You have to lie to protect your identity. And once you start lying to yourself, you're going to start lying to others. And what we see right now in this prologue, Genesis 1 through 11, once the lies begin, it always leads to destruction. It always leads to death. There's a reason, and this is it, why Satan is called the father of all lies. It's destruction. It's death. So, 2,000 years, 1 through 11. 
Then we slow down in chapters 12. This is where I say the story began. Genesis chapter 12, all the way through 50, we slow down, it's about 250 years, and we get a real glimpse of who God is, of his character, because he spends a lot of time with a family. This is our opportunity to get to know God's heart. Genesis 12. We've just ended with the Tower of Babel. We've just proven that we truly, our sin is humanism, our sin is pride, our sin is wanting to do it and rebel, and this is the call of Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now we arrive at a point in history that will prove of such tremendous importance as to shape the course of the world both in this age and the age to come. Because like many of God's mustard-sized seed actions, it seems obscure, it seems seemingly insignificant, but it's the kind of action that in our hearts, in our minds, in our humanness, we say, God, what are you doing? How is this? How are you going to redeem the world? But this is the covenant. This is the covenant so that all people will be blessed. God zeroes in on one man, Abram. He is a worshiper of idols, of other gods in the land of Ur, and says with far unbelievably reaching consequences, implications, that through God's grace, through his life-creating authority, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And with that, the story of us all begins. It's a promise. It's a contract. It's the covenant. It's what testament means. Testament, the old, the new testament. It's covenant. If you do not look at this promise, you're not going to understand the Old Testament context because the Old Testament is in this context. It is God building a great nation. We have what happens next. We get people. God is having a people and we get a multitude in Egypt. Then out of Egypt, we get a leader, Moses, to lead this nation. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, they get a law to govern them. And what happens next? The land. They need the land. This is the promises in Genesis 12. Judges, Joshua, they're going into the land that God has already promised them to take it. And then finally, we get King David, King Solomon. We have a great nation in David. There's progression, and there's another covenant with David. The reason why God's covenants with Abraham and the covenant we're going to look at with David give me such joy is because in my faith, in my life, that all-powerful God, all-knowing God has committed everything through Christ to me. And the most practical truths that any Christian can know from these is that nothing will impact 
the way that you live more than if you understand covenant in contact. It will change how you spend your money. It will change how you bring up your kids. It will change how you spend your free time. It will change who you spend your free time with. Covenant. There's a deep emotional assurance that even though you're a sinner, God's attention is focused on you with all-powerful mercy. And it's day-to-day power that gives you peace in those circumstances that we face in life. God's covenant with David. It's a promise. It's a contract. It's a testament. The renewal takes place with David in 2 Samuel 7 when it talks about this dialogue of a house. When it talks about this dialogue of God coming to David and promising a house. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, God promises David that his throne is going to be forever. And this is the covenant. This is Jesus we're going to look at. It's like a lot of prophetic passages. It's what they do. It takes an extended telescope of events and collapses it down so that near, so that the fire becomes very near. This is the promise to David fulfilled. Let's jump right there. We'll come back and unpack this in a second. Jesus comes from David's line. Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke 1, 31 through 33, and he says this. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Therefore, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the Bible teaches that David has a descendant that has ruled forever, that will rule forever, and it is fulfilled right here in Gabriel's message to Mary. It's the promise of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Lord of David. Jesus now reigns as king in heaven over the true house of Israel. Bless all nations. This is where we're going. This has great significance for you and me because it's not just a blessing for Israel. We have to keep in focus that all nations part. What is happening? If we go back to the Exodus when they're coming out of Egypt, why is God doing all those miracles in the Exodus? Why the plagues? Why the great parting of the Red Sea? Why all this? It's because of where they're going. Look at what's happening when they show up to Canaan and they're getting ready to take the land. Everybody knew who the God of Israel was. Everybody knew who was powerful. Everybody knew who created the universe. Everybody knew who Yahweh was. Why is that important? Because the blessing is to be outward focused. It's to bless all nations. They knew who was the creator. They knew who was Lord of everything. It was God who parted the Red Sea. You can see that clearly. And what happens There's something really significant that if you go over into Matthew and you start talking about where Jesus came from, yes, he comes from the throne of David. But also included in that is Ruth, is Rahab. Why is that significant? Rahab is the woman that meets them in Jericho, and she's an outsider. She is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is a very beautiful book. It's the transition from Judges to Kings, where we get a king in the land of Everybody doing what they want. But Ruth is, yes, it's a beautiful love story, but it's also political. God is setting up a great nation, and Ruth, it's his tender love for Ruth, an outsider, an 
person from the outside that comes in as in the genealogy of Jesus. It's awesome. That is God's plan from the beginning. And now we have the great nation of Israel. Under David and Solomon, they are huge. They are a world power. And they create... Solomon builds this temple of the Lord. And it's huge. And what we see are people from all nations coming to the temple. God fears to worship the God of the universe. It's the covenant right there. It's beautiful. Second Samuel 7, the promise to David, the covenant. Let's go ahead and look at that. Second Samuel 7, beginning 11-ish, 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, you rest with your fathers. I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you. You will come from, he will, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. For he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. We know that from verse 12, God does intend for David to die. Yet, verse 16 says, Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This must mean that the kingdom of David will be established and secured by a descendant. But you look to Solomon. Can it be Solomon? Solomon, despite all his wisdom, starts to look inward. And what happens? He marries foreign women, many of them. And what happens? Those foreign women have other gods, have other idols. And what does Solomon do? He starts to build altars on the high places. When they were... Israel at its best, we've seen, they were a light to the nations. People knew about God through them. But what happens is that Israel learns over the centuries following David and Solomon that their disobedience and their kings always brought the nation to ruin. The kingdom gets divided. Assyria comes in, wipes out the ten tribes. Babylon comes in, takes the rest, takes Judah into captivity. So what is happening here? We see in the prophets, God again. Because in the prophets, it talks about the godly among Israel knew one thing for sure, knew this for sure, knew this covenant for sure, that God promised that the throne of David would be established forever, in verse 4. So they came to see that the son of David must be coming, someone who will fulfill the conditions of the covenant, sit on David's throne and rule forever, who would open up the world to the sonship, to the daughtership of Abraham's covenant, but a succession of imperfect kings can never fulfill the promise. If God's true to his word, stuck by his covenant in this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, a righteous, obedient son of David has to rise up. This is the hope for David's righteous son and the heirs of Abraham. 
And when you look at the New Testament, you need to understand it in the context of what they're talking about here. It's very important that David comes from, or that Jesus comes from the line of David. Because this is what they're talking about in Messiah. This is what Israel was thinking about the entire time, that the Messiah is going to come, get rid of Rome with the sword. It's going to come like a conqueror, like David. That they are the heirs to the promise of the blessing of the land for Abraham, that they are the true sons and daughters. But this, if you look at the New Testament, what Paul, all the apostles, what they write about, what they dialogue about, what they argue about, is this exact thing. This table, this covenant. Is this covenant now for the Gentiles? Isn't the covenant of David and Abraham only relevant to the nation of Israel? This is what the New Testament, the epistles, wrestle back and forth with. Isn't the fulfillment of the promise simply Christ's millennial reign over the redeemed nation of Israel as them, as sons and daughters? The answer, the Old Testament and the New Testament is a resounding no. The reign of Jesus as Davidic king has direct impact and relevance for you and me today because of the way that is revealed here. Second Samuel 7.16 Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. So God has a view and a house and a kingdom much, much greater than Israel. The reason why the Davidic covenant has so much impact and relevance is because it's the God of the covenant that's revealed to David that he doesn't want just to establish a ruler over Israel. It's a lot bigger than that. More people can enter into the covenant. More people can be called sons and daughters. Isaiah says this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will be worldwide. Revelation, an angel comes in 11, 15, and says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and shall reign forever and ever. What does this mean? What does this covenant mean? What does David's rule, this covenant to David, actually mean? The house of David that's going to be forever is planet Earth. This is the original covenant with Abraham. Through you, all nations are going to be blessed from every tongue, from every nation, as we see in Revelation. In Galatians 3.8, this is what Paul is talking about the wrestling with the practical application of the covenant, with the practical application of how Jesus' covenant relates to the Abrahamic, to the Davidic covenant. In Galatians 8, or 3, verse 6 through 8. Consider Abraham. He believed God and was credited to him to his righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture first saw that would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, a man of faith. This is what we're talking about. It means that when we start applying this to our lives, personal holiness means that we are adopting the customs of a new kingdom and it changes how we approach the table, it changes how we live in the world. Because even though 
The world has rebelled. We have also rebelled. But in great mercy and grace, we now have the privilege to enter into the kingdom forever and ever. And when we go out in our personal evangelism, we are to present it amnesty for all people, for all sons and daughters, the possibility from every nation. This is the thing that we talked about the apostles wrestle with. One of the problems with Israel was that they had become very exclusive. They tried to protect that part of the blessing, which the land, you have the land and you'll get blessing, you'll get rich and you'll be greater among all the nations. But it got so exclusive, so inward focused, that you see in Acts 15, the council where they're talking about this and they're talking specifically about circumcision. They're talking about the law, the Mosaic covenant where at Sinai they get the law. Is that just now for us? Paul and Barnabas talk about their success among the Gentiles. What finally happens at the end of that is the nail is put in the coffin when James says it is by God's name through the Davidic throne. So finally, we come to the place where it's open to everyone. It is inclusive. When does Jesus get mad? There's only one time where you see Jesus really angry. It's in Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 2. It's at the temple. Why is he mad at the temple? Yeah, they're money changers. They're selling things in the house of God, in the house of worship. They are demeaning that house. Yeah, he gets angry. Where are they doing it? Solomon built this great temple, and people from all over the world are coming to see it. Where are they selling? They're selling in the court of the Gentiles. And what are they doing? They're putting the poor, they're putting widows at risk. They are excluding the Gentiles. There is no opportunity for God fears to come and worship God. That's why Jesus gets angry. It's not the covenant. It's not the table. It's not the covenant of love. It's not why he came. That's the crux of it. So when I come to the covenant table, one of the questions I always have to ask myself, am I exclusive? Because of my actions, because of my words, am I coming to this table at all without love and preventing someone else from entering the kingdom? Am I putting someone at risk? Well, that's the covenant. That's this table. In John, there's a series of decorative I am statements that Jesus goes through where he reveals exactly who he is and exactly what the cross means and exactly why we come together and remember him because the great I am has pursued you, has loved you, has done everything for you and for me. This is the covenant of his blood. Identity claimed. How does this apply to us today? Paul writes a commentary on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 26. 
In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received the Lord what I have also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is shed for you. Do this, and this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if we put covenant in context, in the big context, and I think what Paul is getting at here, it seems pretty significant to me that Paul, when he approaches this covenant, when he approaches the Lord's table, he's not doing it as a systematic teaching on worship. But it's in the context of rebuke. What is happening here? The covenant of Jesus is a call to love, and he introduces it as a way of supporting his rebuke for their unlove at church meals. The main issues he's dealing with in these verses are an inward focus, a selfish behavior, a lack of love when they come to enjoy a, measure, a meal together. So what can we learn from covenant, from what Paul brings up at the mess at Corinth? Look at verse 17. I don't commend you for what is going on when you come together. 18. When you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. I believe that in part there must be some factions for you in order to recognize who's genuine among you. The factions are owing to sin, no doubt. Division, no doubt. But Paul sees a divine purpose so the genuine, the authentic, can stand out in verse 19. But we look at this, it's obvious. Some of the context here, the division is also economic because Paul goes on to describe it. Some Christians in this setting are poor and some are not. Well-to-do seem almost hostile to the poor. They are exclusive. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. In other words, the well-to-do seem oblivious of the poor and they even get drunk while the poor go hungry right in their church gathering, right as they're sharing the table together. It seems impossible, doesn't it? That you could get ignore the poor right at your table when they're brothers and sisters in the same body. Paul's very upset about this. He says, what? Do you not have houses 
of your own to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing? Eat before you come to the Lord's Supper. If you're going to turn the feast of the church into something completely exclusive. I think what's most important is in verse 22, Paul is asking, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Why? This is really strong, unexpected language to put in the context of covenant. The kind of behavior that is happening at Corinth amounts to despising the church and shaming the poor. And the question we have to ask ourselves as a church this morning, as Wyzetta, are we different than Corinth? Because do you think these well-to-do folks at Corinth would have agreed with Paul that they were despising the church? I would say no. I would say no. They would not agree that they're despising the people of Christ. Not without a lot of convicting grace. I think they would say... Paul, what do you mean? We don't despise the church. We love the church. We love coming here. We love being here. We wouldn't have come otherwise. We love the feasts. We don't despise the church. That's the heart of everyone at Corinth. But this is devastating. We have to look at ourselves. What does it mean coming to church? For one thing, it doesn't mean that we're not despising the church. You can love coming to church and at the same time despise the church because you've taken covenant out of context. That's not what the covenant is about. And Paul says this in the middle of verse 22, you humiliate those who have nothing. So they're despising the church and shaming the poor. That is, they're treating the church as something utterly beneath what the church is. And Paul spends a lot of time telling us what the church is. It's the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. It is the dwelling place of God. And Paul says you come and eat and drink as though you're the center of the universe and that this is exclusively about you. Bless me, God. Paul says that's inward focus. And he says in verse 22, shall I commend you in this? And he says... No, I will not. And then precisely right here, he narrates the rest of the covenant. He narrates the rest of the Lord's Supper by introducing it with for or because. I will not commend this selfish behavior. I will not commend this lack of love. Because I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. In other words, in other words Paul says he is not going to commend this lack of love, this selfish behavior, because it contradicts the very core of the covenant for you. There's too much love at this table, and love is selfless. The Lord's Supper is more than just a mere religious ritual. It's a call to love. It's a call to the covenant. Paul says, don't you realize that in a few moments, you are going to be standing there with the cup and the bread in your hand. And Christ died for the church. He died for the poor. Brothers and sisters, 
the genuine, the authentic among you. You will love the church and you will embrace the poor at your table. That's what the covenant means. The Old Testament, Israel, we can see that there was an exclusive attitude. There was an exclusiveness to it. It was inward focus. And I think about that for me too, as I come to the covenant table and realize how much God has pursued me, how much he loved me, how much has been sacrificed for me at this table. Can I come to this table and have it be all about me? That seems not very grateful. I think people miss part of the blessing because they focus on the blessing that is about self. But it's not just about that. I look at this table and I say, Jesus has stood in the gap for me. He's advocated for me. And I go back to Genesis and the original blessing and I go back to what God set up for me to be a steward to be an advocate, to be someone who steps in and protects. And I have to ask myself as I come, who in my life am I advocating for? Who in my life am I standing in the gap for? When we come to the covenant table, this is the promise from the beginning of time until now. And it is a table of grace and mercy. Sometimes grace is tender. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes grace is very sweet. But also sometimes grace is severe. But it's always grace. And it's always mercy. Paul goes on to say that we should examine ourselves. So as we close, as we come to the table, why is that? What is our church? What is our attitude toward the church? What is our attitude toward the poor. Can it be passive? Can it be passive? You know, it's great to talk about theology. And it's great to talk about philosophy and worldviews and all these kind of conceptual things. But if there's not any practical application, I really don't care. I don't care if it doesn't change how I live. So I might ask myself, as I come to the table, how does the body and the blood change how I live today? How does this body, how does his body, how does his blood, his loving covenant to me change how I live tomorrow? It's very interesting that Paul closes this commentary on the covenant in verse 26. When you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're talking about the gospel. That is it. So, I close with an invitation to come to Jesus' covenant, to come to God's covenant with Abraham and David and make it a covenant with you. It's not just my invitation because Isaiah talks about this. 55, 1 through 3. The point of this invitation, the point when we come and we look at covenant and we're standing before Christ this morning is the very sovereignty, wisdom, and love of God which assured David an eternal kingdom can also assure you of God's eternalness that you will be part of that kingdom. Isaiah. Ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is 
not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in fatness. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Paul, when he talks about covenant, he's quoting Jeremiah 31. And it's no longer the exclusiveness. It's no longer just these words written on tombstone tablets. Because in Jeremiah it says, let me write it on your heart. Come to the covenant this morning. Come to this table this morning. And know that the mercy, the faithfulness that guarantees David an eternal kingdom, Abraham, the father of all nations, can guarantee you the joy and righteousness and peace of that kingdom. God is saying to you this morning, if you come to me empty-handed, hungry, willing to receive what I give, then I will write my presence onto your heart. This is my covenant, that I bind myself with an oath to treat you forever the same mercy, the same faithfulness that I have demonstrated to Abraham and to David. This is God's heart. This is the covenant. Jesus, in his great love and mercy, is right now in covenant with us. There's power in communion. There's power in coming to the table and remembering the cost of love and the victory of the covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus is here this morning saying to you and me, this is the covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me.